Hey, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts, a religious folklore and Christian theology podcast. Here, we discuss stories from the Bible, the Apocrypha, and the fine line between myth and history surrounding various belief systems. We take on the stories in a sarcastic and humor-driven way that doesn't take itself too seriously, but still shines a light on the principles and ideology behind the stories and their origin. Today, we'll learn when it's time to stop doubling down on your own stupidity, about the time people start dying, and that when your co-conspirators die by an incredible miracle from God, it might be time to leave the conspiracy yourself. There's a lot I have to say, so I'm going to go ahead and get right into the story. At the very tail end of last episode, we introduced Koro with his co-conspirators Dathan and Abiram. All of them craved power, each of them had their own motivations, but all had united to take on Moses and Aaron. Korah was a cousin of Moses, closely related to him. His family was not sharing the power that he so desperately craved. While Korah had a decent leadership job, it wasn't anything quite up to his standard. Moses should have kicked a better job over to him due to family loyalty and nepotism. Korah would have been happy, at least for the time being, if Moses and Aaron had taken him into the family business and promoted him to some high position of leadership. But ancient Israel didn't hand out leadership positions like candy. God gave them to those who were the most worthy. And unfortunately for Korah, he didn't make the cut. Dathan and Abiram had other reasons to rebel. They were leaders of the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son of Israel. Israel, the common ancestor of the Hebrew people. Reuben should have gotten the right to lead all 12 tribes, but Israel passed over Reuben when choosing an heir. Part of it was because he really had a lot of favoritism toward his son, Joseph, to whom he gave a double portion of the inheritance and a coat of many colors, but that's another story. He gave the spiritual blessing to Judah, who, despite trying to get Joseph killed and sleeping with his daughter-in-law, had reformed his life. He became a person of courage, taking charge and standing up for the right. Judah had received a blessing from his father for his lifetime of working on himself to bring out these noble characteristics. Levi, who founded the tribe which Moses belonged to, had not received a blessing from his father due to his treacherous slaughter of an entire city, see episode 2, albeit for good reason. But he won that blessing later when he stood in opposition to defying God at great cost to himself. But Reuben was an opportunist, and his descendants tended to follow in that mold. Reuben opposed killing Joseph, but he convinced his brothers to throw him in a pit instead and then took a walk. He never had the strength to tell them that they were doing the wrong thing. Despite being the oldest and the one that his brothers should have looked up to the most. When Reuben made a promise to his father, he swore on the lives of his two sons. But instead, his father listened to Judah, despite Judah not making any oath. Reuben was known for his irresponsibility, his wish-washiness, and his apathy. That's why Israel never gave Reuben the privilege of leadership. And through the ages, Reuben remained in the background. Until Dathan and Abiram joined the conspiracy. Dathan and Abiram were determined to bring the tribe of Reuben to the glory that it could have had. Princes of one of the four clans of Reuben, they believed themselves to hold the right to the leadership of the people of Israel. While Korah, Dathan, and Abiram all had their separate reasons for claiming leadership, All three opposed God's choice in leaders, Moses and Aaron. 
While the two brothers did not want the leadership, they had been chosen by God, nor were they ready to give it up to these three impetuous and power-hungry people. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram didn't care. One way or the other, they would seize power, even if it meant the death of Moses and Aaron. And hopefully, it did. And so the conflict began. For a time, the plans were made in the dark. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did their best to create a following. But there was some difficulty in this at first, because Moses had plenty of supporters throughout the camp. He had done so much for the people, even liberating them from slavery. He had been so self-sacrificing. But Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did their best to spin everything that he did in a negative light, and many of these people ended up coming around. A large part of their success was due to the events that had happened with Caleb and Joshua. There were a lot of people in the company desperate to believe that Moses and Aaron were in the wrong. They would not die in the wilderness, like Moses said. They had not offended God, as Moses had said. They were really, truly good people. That's what they wanted to believe. Within a few short weeks, we can assume, after the Caleb incident, we don't know exactly how long, but they had gathered enough followers for the rebellion. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, with 250 of the most important people among the Hebrews, came up to Moses, demanding an audience. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram may have started with intentions that they knew to be selfish, but by this point, they sincerely believed that they were motivated by the desire to serve God. They truly believed that by opposing Moses and Aaron, they were on the side of God. And their first argument reflects that. They started with an innocent-sounding proposal, sympathizing with how hard Moses and Aaron were working and how they needed extra help. Every one of the Hebrews was holy, Korah insisted. They were all generally good people, and there was no need for Moses to tax himself so hard trying to rule them. God wanted everyone to have the right to rule, to be a priest, and to communicate his words to the people. The people, who had within the past couple months been trying to kill other people for disagreeing with them, now ate this argument up. Yes, they were. They were such good people. How dare Moses try to control their very good natures? Moses, on the other hand, was shocked at how far this rebellion had gone. He knew there had been whispers of revolt, of tension, since the Caleb and Joshua incident a couple of months ago, but he was unaware of how many important people were backing this up. The first thing Moses did was to pray. Then he told Korah's group, if they really believed that they were priests and leaders, they should take censers or containers to burn incense during a religious ceremony and offer an offering to God. Because they were the true leaders, Yahweh would obviously accept them. But remember the people who had insulted Yahweh, worshipping him irreverently and out of political motivation? Those people before them hadn't fared too well. Were they sure they really wanted to try this? The people who had made Yahweh's worship a trivial matter, who had displayed a lack of reverence for his worship, had been struck dead. Obviously, if God really wanted them to be leaders, Yahweh would accept them. But were they sure? Were they sure that God wanted them to be the leaders, or maybe they just craved power for personal reasons? They needed to think about that. Moses appealed particularly to Korah and his supporters, other members of his own tribe, the tribe of Levi. They had positions of leadership. Good positions. God had singled them out for high honors. Did they really want to spit on that all and insult God because he hadn't made them like the number one ruler? How many number one rulers did they want? 
Cora was not advocating for democracy here, despite his pretenses and the amount of times that he repeated everyone was holy. He only agreed with the people long enough to get himself into power. He was just using these people. Moses asked Cora supporters how deep their buy-in was. Were they sure they wanted to run into God's presence, opposing the people they knew he had chosen to rule, swinging censers and burning incense? Moses also talked to Dathan and Abiram and their supporters. While they had come forward with Korah in opposition to Moses, they had not distinguished themselves as Korah did. They were not as overtly opposed to Moses and Aaron. So Moses tried to reason with them. Were they sure they wanted to get into this? They were following Korah, someone from an opposing tribe, into his war. They should know that this guy was acting in his own self-interest out of a craving for power. Did they really believe they were doing this for God, in spite of all the evidence against that? Were they sure this is where they wanted to make their stand? Moses was willing to talk with all of them, to discuss what was going on. No one needed to rush headlong into this without being fully informed. Dathan and Abiram spat on Moses' request. The land you made us leave was a, end quote, land of milk and honey. Read, society where they were held as property and beaten daily. No, not again, Moses sighed for the thousandth time. Yeah, we wish we were slaves again, Dathan and Abiram said. What a great time that was. Egypt was such a great place. They had good meat and onions. You were slaves, Moses sighed. They whipped you and killed your children. How in any way could someone see that as a good place? Can't we just talk about this? Dathan and Abiram snorted. Korah had taught them well. They didn't talk about their opinions with anyone who might disagree. That was just unthinkable. They might be persuaded to change their opinion, or, in their words, we might just be blinded to the truth. They were not coming to see Moses. Moses was furious. He prayed to God. This was ridiculous. Please, like, seriously don't put these people in charge, Moses begged. I never wronged them in any way, and they refused to even listen to me. God told the people to come up before the temple and do the censor thing, but wait until the next morning. A note here. Throughout this story, you'll see God offering chance after chance to the rebels to admit they're in the wrong. Despite them rebelling against the leaders God explicitly chose and trying to kill them, God continually offers them a chance to realize how unreasonable they're being and repent. They refuse these chances, but God is continually offering them. Have you ever been super angry, dead set on something, or firmly believing you're in the right, but you wake up in the morning and think, what in the world was I thinking? That's what God was hoping would happen here. It had been a long and stressful day. These people were doubling down on their desire to take power and profane God's worship and take the places of the leaders God had openly chosen. But in the morning, would these people really be so sure that they were doing the right thing? And that's why he put the censor waving off until the next morning. And we'll see what the people do the next morning, right after this. The next morning, the 250 leaders of the people stood before the Lord, twirling round and round, dancing with their censors. This was great! Nothing had happened to them. They were right. They had always been right. But they were not doing the right thing. God was looking down. These people were not his chosen leaders. 
They were opposing the very people they knew, or should have known, that he had chosen. But he was not going to kill them yet. Their sins did not yet deserve death. They had been caught up in a frenzy, a popular movement, not really knowing what they were doing. They weren't aware that at the end of the conspiracy, they would end up killing Moses and Aaron, take absolute power, and go against God's will and God's law. And they needed the chance to see that. Right now, they firmly believed they were following God's will. They needed to be shown that they were not. Moses, ordered by God, walked determinedly toward the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. He ordered the crowd to disperse. The people who stayed too close to their tents would receive the same punishment as they did. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram walked out of their tents, probably shooting some zingy one-lighter in the direction of Moses. What did Moses think he was going to do? Moses looked in the direction of their tents. Since they were sure he was not a representative of God, they wouldn't have to worry. If he wasn't, and just some pretentious man, nothing would happen. But if he was a servant of God, everyone would see something heretofore unheard of. A sinkhole would open immediately and swallow up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Even now, there was time for Korah to admit that maybe he was wrong. Maybe his plot had not been according to God's will. But he refused. He still claimed to be serving God completely. For the briefest of moments, Korah began to laugh. But there was a rumble as the ground began to sink and drop. Korah and his servants and his family, mouths agape in astonishment and terror, fell deep below the ground and the ground closed in on them. As they screamed, the rest of the Hebrews ran in terror. This fate could be theirs too. All except for the 250 men who were still burning incense, still so convinced that they were right despite the fact that the ringleaders had just died by a horrific miracle. The flames in the censers started becoming unstable. Still the men swung them, until suddenly the fire burst forth from their censers, exploding onto them and killing them. The rebellion quieted down for the afternoon. After the death of Korah and the 250 men, the people went back to their tents. Moses breathed a sigh of relief. He shouldn't have. That night, instead of thinking about where they had gone wrong, the people decided that they instead should absolutely rationalize their actions and pretend that everything they had done was totally okay. Anyway, what was so wrong about what they had done? They were serving God, who was speaking through Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, after all. They were opposing Satan, who was working through Moses and Aaron. That's what they believed, at least. And this is what the unpardonable sin is. Jesus, in the New Testament, describes all manner of sins God can forgive. Because throughout the Bible, God is forgiving. There's one sin that God can't forgive, however, and that's the sin that no one ever repents of. And that's what's so chilling. God works on every person's heart, and many people acknowledge that they mess up, they do the wrong thing, that they didn't measure up to God's standard, and every single one of those people can and will be forgiven, no matter what they did, as long as they desire to be forgiven and want to change their ways. But there are some who believe that what they did wasn't that bad, that it's just society that is telling them what they are doing is wrong, not God, that the Bible wasn't written for our time, and so on. And if someone persists in this belief, they will go further and further until they start truly believing that the wrong thing they are doing is perfectly justified. 
When God sends people to warn them of the error of their ways, these people will assume that the people warning them are just humans who hate what they are doing, but at the same time, God loves what they are doing, even though they are, in truth, completely rejecting him. Some may even start to truly believe that Satan is the one that's making them feel bad for doing what they're doing. It doesn't start out like this, though. People say something stupid under a momentary impulse. Later on, they realize that what they said was stupid, but because they don't want to admit that they were wrong, they double down. And they double down so often that months, years, maybe even decades later, they repeat it again, but this time, they truly believe they are in the right. And God has sent us the Bible to give people firm evidence as to what's the truth and what's not. But people have twisted it in many ways, and it's confusing. Still, God and the Holy Spirit are there to help us, and the truth is in the Bible if you search for it. But people love to ignore what's there and rely on their own opinions and feelings, truly believing they are in the right, but every day getting farther from God. An example is the Pharisees. No matter how many miracles Jesus worked, no matter how much evidence he gave for his teachings from the Bible, the Pharisees never sought to study to see if he was telling the truth. Instead, they just accused him of being from a racial group they disliked, the Samaritans. Sadly, we've seen this in more recent times, where people have claimed that Jesus is anything but Jewish in order to fit their Christianity around their anti-Semitic hatred instead of allowing their Christianity to destroy the race-based hatred in their lives. On the part of the Pharisees, instead of acknowledging Jesus as sent by God, they accused him of working miracles through the power of the devil. And when Jesus showed them how stupid this argument was, instead of rethinking, they decided it was just time to kill him so that he couldn't condemn their reasoning again. There was nothing Jesus could say that could convince the Pharisees because they had deluded themselves to the point that even though they claimed to worship God, they had made their religion so much about their man-made ideas and refused to listen to God's Son that they ended up killing him and thinking that it was out of zeal for God the Father. They had committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. And while I'm sure that no one listening has committed that sin, God has new ways of showing us that we are in the wrong and he never gets tired of continually pleading with us, we have to be on our guard to make sure that we don't get so comfortable with our preferred view of Christianity and God that we ignore who God actually is. And that's exactly what the remaining followers of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did. Despite overwhelming evidence that they were in the wrong, they wanted the rebels to be right, so badly that they went up to Moses and Aaron and accused them of killing God's people. Wait wait a minute. Are you sure you want to double down on this? Moses and Aaron asked. You literally saw God's judgments against them. Are you sure you don't want to think about this anymore before you try to kill us? No, the mob said. They were absolutely going to kill Moses and Aaron, who were operating under the power of Satan. God showed up again, but the mob thought it was some magic that Moses and Aaron had worked. They proceeded in their aim to kill Moses and Aaron, but God stopped them. People again caught the plague, dying where they stood. Moses and Aaron rushed to pick up one of the fallen censers. They offered incense to God, praying for him to have mercy on these people. They had only been caught up in a popular wave of rebellion. Please, God, please spare them. And Moses and Aaron stood there before God, pleading with him to spare those who were trying to kill them. And God did. After almost 15,000 people had died of the plague, it stopped, leaving Moses and Aaron standing there, and the congregation left to pick up the pieces. I assume it wasn't right away, but a few days later, after the people had gotten their lives back together.
Moses and Aaron understood that many people who hadn't resorted to violence were still in doubt as to who the correct leaders were. God had a plan to solve that. The ruler of each tribe would take his rod, or the staff symbolizing his authority, and carve his name on it. Aaron would also put his rod in the mix. Whichever rod bloomed, that would be the one God had chosen. The next day, Moses returned to retrieve the rods, and he showed them to the people. While all the other rods were still as dry as the desert, Aaron's rod had budded, blossomed, and ripe almonds were growing from it. Moses kept that rod as directed by God. He left it in the temple to prove for all generations who the correct leader was, and Aaron's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren were priests for years and years to come. Meanwhile, the Hebrews were full of regret. Now that time had passed, cooler heads prevailed. The leaders of the rebellion were gone, and the remaining people were starting to think things over. What they had done was wrong. They were incredibly sorry for what they had done. But God forgave them. He always did. While there were many situations in the future where they would be tested to see if they truly served God, and many would stay true to Him while many others would leave Him, for the moment they were clean. And God hoped with all His heart, as He always does, that they would choose to stay that way. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be doing the story of Judas, which I promised almost a year ago and as yet haven't delivered on it. We'll learn what motivated the widely hated disciple to do the thing that made him so hated by everyone. Like, really, what was he thinking? Credits to myself, Caleb Howard, for script writing and theme music. Special thanks to Anchor Podcasts for providing the music and to all my amazing supporters for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, leave a review, and most of all, share with your friends. All of you wonderful listeners is why I continue to produce new content. I appreciate all of you so much. Thank you, and see you soon.